As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Well, Harm, the Canucks were on a ridiculous tear. For quite a while there in March, it wasn't an April Fool's joke, but we knew at some point the bottom was going to fall out a little bit. Now, it hasn't been awful, but the Canucks have gone uh, 0-2-1 in their last three games. Three straight losses. They did manage a point in one of the games. Not that the points matter, but um, it's looked a little bit different. We've, we're seeing some looseness in play uh, defensively that we hadn't seen earlier. Look, the Canucks are down, now on to their 15th defenseman this season. Akita Hiroshi played in the game last night. We'll talk about his performance a bit later, but... We knew at some point they couldn't continue to keep this up and it was going to regress a little bit, and here we are. Yeah, it's definitely been a bit of a blip in the radar. Nobody's saying that all of a sudden the strides that they made under Tockett have, um, that they're reversing all of a sudden. But yeah, I mean, it's been a little bit different, and you expect that with the ebbs and flows of the season, especially as it gets closer to the 82 game mark, and you, you know that for players it becomes just a little bit harder to get up for these games, especially now that after not, not that it was ever a realistic goal, but even now that you see it on paper that, okay, they're officially mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. Plus you've had enough of a sample here under talk it where usually when a new coach comes in, everybody's got that extra rush of adrenaline because new bosses here got impressed the new boss. Uh, And now you're seeing the opportunity sort of, I don't know what what the right word for for it is, but you're you're seeing guys establish themselves on the totem pole a little bit more, and so there's a little bit less to play for in that sense as well. Some some guys some guys have uh, already had an indication in terms of the, the depth pieces with uh, with contracts. Obviously, those guys are now so a couple of those guys are out now with injury, but um, then you combine that um, with the um, the goaltending regressing a little bit and some more individual mistakes. And look, it, it, it sort of happens. It's um, it was interesting. The St. Louis one, for example, the Canucks actually played decently well in that game. In fact, they controlled 60% of the five and five scoring chances. And it, it was positive to see them battle and get a point. And yet, you know, that was an example of a game where so an off rare off night for uh, for Thatcher Demko. So it wasn't all bad to sort of look through that stretch. Obviously, I think the Calgary performance was um, w- was a lot worse than that, and, and that was a game where we saw quite a few uh, quite a few breakdowns. And the LA one the other night was sort of a case too, where honestly that was a case where the Kings went up and they just slowed the game down to such uh, a slow pace, kind of uh, parked the bus and. Uh, created an environment where it was just such a low uh, low event game and and you're right in terms of there have been more of those egregious mistakes um breakdowns that we didn't see uh, as many of under talk when he first took over I went back and sort of tracked some of the goals against uh, nine of the 15 started with either a giveaway or included a cross seam pass right wow. so yeah you can tell so right ba- away. We're back to that. We're back to that. A little bit. I don't want, I don't think we like, I don't, I don't want to say this is a systemic team wide issue again, because again, it's such a small sample size plus uh, such a, such a um, high proportion of those have been 
concentrated among a small group of players. When you look at, for instance, Tyler Myers, um, uh, Guillaume Breezeball, for instance, like that, like Myers, I, I don't want to pin him entirely for that Calgary game, but man, that was probably his worst game of uh, of the season. The number of uh, turnovers that he had, uh, the way that he um, was defending the rush, Breezeball certainly has uh, looked rough in both the St. Louis game uh, and the Calgary one as well. So I- I'm not too concerned because with those guys, I mean, Breezeball is probably going to spend most of next year in the AHL. Myers, you hope that he either that the club either finds a way to get off of the contract in the offseason, or if he is back next season, then it's hopefully in sort of reduced, you know, third pair role, especially when the blue line isn't as hammered with uh with injuries with Hronik gone as well, too. So um yes, there have been more breakdowns and but I'm not gonna read too too deep into it at this late in the season. With these amount of injuries, and especially with uh, with the players that have been turning turning the puck over, not necessarily being guys that are going to play huge roles for the team next season. Well, when we talked about this a week ago. At the end of the day, some of this is a good thing because when we talked a week ago, we thought the Canucks could get to twentieth, right? Like yeah. we thought that Buffalo and Ottawa, you know, there was a real chance Vancouver. The way they were rolling, they were going to pass these teams, and now all of a sudden, Vancouver's in twenty fifth. Uh, three teams above them are tied, Detroit, St. Louis, and Washington at 77 points. The Canucks at 75. Vancouver has a game in hand uh, on Washington and St. Louis. And when I say game in hand, they've played one more, which means they can gain fewer points in those games, right? So, um, And then uh, 70, Detroit and Vancouver both have 76 games. Uh, Washington, St. Louis each have 77. Uh, certainly... Uh, Arizona at 27, Vancouver's not catching them. Philadelphia, four points back, unlikely. Uh, they catch the Canucks to move ahead of them in the standings. So 25th right now, as we see it, is probably realistically the best the Canucks could do in terms of worst and best draft position, right? So, you know, you, you hope with Detroit, St. Louis, and Washington around them that the Canucks find a way to just tread water enough to stay below them in the standings. Yeah, I mean, at this point, the only thing that really matters in terms of stakes is trying to see players at milestones, right? We want to see Elias Pettersson hit the 100-point mark. We want to see Andre Kuzmenko hit 40 goals. Quinn Hughes, if he can hit 80 points. Uh, that's really the f- the fun to look forward to towards the end of the season. Maybe some of, um, obviously, some of the young guys as well, whether it's a Hirose or, you know, Dakota Joshua is not necessarily a young player, but seeing him in a different role uh, as we have um, as we have recently up, uh, up the lineup a-, a little bit. It's more just, more so just about that as, um, you know, again, we we're we're past the stage where it's like, oh, okay, which guys are going to improve the most under Talkit? Which guys are going to regress a little bit? What big changes are there going to necessarily be? Uh, now it's it's really just about, I think, uh, trying to see some of the top players hit milestones, and for that, you don't necessarily need to uh, need to um, win games. There, I do think it's interesting though when you look at these past three games. Um, when you mention the sort of breakdowns and 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 the number I mentioned in terms of how many goals have come off either the giveaway or the crossing pass. Again, I'm not too worried about, oh, this is going to rear rear its um, ugly head next season again. I think it's more interesting, though, from a descriptive standpoint to be able to point to the difference in why through the first 25 games or so under Talkit, the club's defensive results were, um, were, were so much better is because it wasn't necessarily that Talkit overhauled the systems. It wasn't that he necessarily changed the way that they play in the defensive zone. I mean, JT Miller himself had mentioned that they've literally changed nothing in terms of in the defensive zone, what they're looking to do systems wise. It's more so been about, first of all, I think philosophy, it's more of a mindset, but also it's simply been about reducing the egregious mistakes. And that's so important because the thing about defending in your own end is when you actually have numbers back, most teams can force opponents to the outside. It's not too hard. Really, when it comes down to like playing down low and those long shifts in the offensive zone, that actually, in my opinion, has more of an impact sort of fatiguing the other team out and and sort of wearing them out, ensuring that they're not able to create offense more so than it is about... Um, uh, about that you're going to create all these really, really high danger scoring chances because 
you know, occasionally you might see a breakdown off the cycle, but more often than more often than not, how many times do you see a scenario in the offensive zone off 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 the cycle where a team might be sort of making a lot of passes, going D to D, um, and they and it looks really nice, but they aren't actually able to get a high danger chance from in tight. Where you get those high danger chances um, are usually off the rush. They're usually and, and and you know those rush chances often start with with turnovers. Um, and so I think that's, um, that's interesting to point out where we've seen the difference and now we can point back to the first 25 games and go, okay, it was the absence of those types of mistakes that, uh, really, really made the biggest improvements, uh, defensively. As we, as we talked to, uh, some of the guys after the game, right? I mean, Elias Pettersson, he was, we talk about milestones. He had a streak snap point streak snapped at 14 games, one shy of the club record, uh, didn't like how his line played, just didn't feel like they generated enough. Uh, you know, we've seen Kuzmenko get a little quieter of late, just in terms of his process, if not his actual results. Um, but we've also got, uh, after the game, JT Miller said he felt the team was soft. And not just in this game, but in the last three games, where they've given up a lot more defensively. He felt they've been soft. He was a little frustrated for a, a team that's mathematically been eliminated from the playoffs. I don't think the players necessarily cared about that. They knew that was going to happen. It was inevitable, but just... They don't like how they're playing in the last few games. Uh, that matters to them, especially in terms of their ability to close things out. And then uh, Rick Tockett afterwards concurred, right? Didn't like how they played in some areas and, and said, yeah, yeah, we probably were soft. Uh, what do you make of that word, that comment? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was interesting because I haven't necessarily looked at the the work rate and been like, that's the primary issue. There have been points earlier in the year under Boudreaux where that was much more prevalent issue where I was like, okay, it looks like guys are, are straight up just kind of giving up at, on certain plays and at, and at certain points. Have there been individual plays where they've been a little bit soft? Yeah, I, I think maybe, I think that's definitely been one of the areas where they haven't been as sharp with their details. I think particularly over the last few games, there has been a bit of a difference where they haven't been as, uh, as good clearing out uh, rebounds, right? There have been a couple examples where you know, Demko. I think, for example, the um, the Ayafalo power play one, uh, where Arvidsson had the initial shot off the, off the post, and Ayafalo was able to jam home the rebound. I think that's an example of of a goal where it's like you'd want you'd want somebody like the Canucks were there and they just didn't win that battle. They could have been they should have been harder on Ayafalo. So sure, I think that would be an example. There were, I think, I'm trying to remember if it was either against the Blues or or the Flames. I can't remember the exact goal, but there was another example. I, I think it was one of the Blues ones where Demko made a save and instead of steering the rebound to the corner, he left it kind of right in the slot. And um, actually, it was the Flames' second goal. And and Myers was kind of, My Myers was there, but he wasn't able to sort of clear that rebound out. And so... You look at that goal and you go, okay, sure, Demko probably should have steered it into a better location, but at the end of the day, even if it ends up there, as a defensive unit, you should be able to sort of win that battle and clear that puck uh, puck out. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's been an issue here and there, but I'm not too concerned about the about about the trend um, in the big picture here. What about goaltending? And you know, for me. We'll, we'll get into this before we go go to break here, and that is, we talked about this a year ago. Um, Thatcher Demko getting overplayed, you know, and, and certainly his play a year ago went from unbelievable, like you know, eleven out of ten level goaltending to like eight out of ten post trade deadline, right? Uh, and actually, really before that, like it was almost like the beginning of February onwards, his play went from incredible to just kind of decent, right? And I think we've seen that the last three games. You know, um, after giving up six goals and five goals uh, in the last two games of March, and then only three last night, but one of them, the second one, was a real stinker. Um, and again, he hasn't played poor, so don't take from this. I think he's bad. I don't think that at all. Uh, you know, because in in the St. Louis and Calgary games, he still made some spectacular saves. He just wasn't playing at the level maybe he played at earlier um, when he came back off of injury. Uh, still good, but just not incredible. Uh, and how much of that is just how much they played him down the stretch? Because Rick Tockett has now said that he expects Delia to get three to four games over these final seven. So, you know, essentially playing half the game. So they might slow him down a little bit. We asked Demko about it afterwards. 
And he simply was not going to bite. He didn't bite a year ago. He wasn't going to accept that. He's like, look, I'll play as much as I can. And, you know, there is an argument to be made that they need to get him back used to carrying the load next year, you know, like doing what doing this year, what he's going to need to do next year at times. So do you see any level of wear down in Thatcher Demko's game? Because I think we all believe that maybe they're playing him a little bit more than is necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all see that he hasn't been as sharp. I mean, trying to attribute why exactly that is becomes a little bit um, a little bit tricky, especially from from the outside. I do think the workload. You you look at the fact that since he's returned, he's had thirteen of uh, of seventeen starts, which over eighty two games would be a sixty two start pace. That is quite a bit, especially for a guy who's directly coming back um, from an injury. I do, I do like that talk. It hopefully they do follow through with with the idea of of giving Delia three to four of the next uh, starts. Just because again, I do think it's important to sort of uh, manage um, manage the physical workload. I mean, these games don't really matter from this point on, so there's no point. But they, they haven't for, they haven't for a while now, right? Like, yeah. like the games haven't mattered yet. This is the tack they've been taking. So okay, we we hear what. Uh, what talk it says, but at the same time, they're on a homestand that seems to matter in terms of the statements they want to make the season ticket holders, right? And they've lost the first two games of that. Um, and, and look, I'm not suggesting it should matter. We've, we've kind of shaken our heads collectively at what does matter for this team when maybe other things should matter more. But, you know, could you see this scenario? And then here's another one, by extension. And I didn't get a chance to ask this to, to uh, Demko yesterday. What happens if Team USA calls? As an organization, do you encourage him to go to the Worlds and maybe risk anything? Or do you think there's something more to be gained here so he can play more uh, because of all the time that he missed this year sitting out three months? Yeah, that's a really good point. I haven't thought about what you know their perspective on, uh, on all of that uh, might be. You're right that they've probably p- played him too much at, uh, at this point. Probably could have been a little bit um, slower in terms of how they rolled, uh, rolled him back. I would hesitate. I'm trying to be careful not to just blame it all on the workload, though, just because the team in front of them has been making more mistakes. And, you know, some of it might just be, hey, when a guy comes back, he might not be elite through the entire entire way. You're you're going to have games where you're, where you're just not as, um, as sharp. And yeah, there have been more goals where he's had a clear sight line and he's kind of gotten beat, uh, beat clean. I, I don't just by default want to point to the workload. workload. Sometimes... Workload, though, sometimes prevents coaching, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it prevents tweaking. So now you've got to manage what you ask him to do between games if you know you're going to roll him out there. And, you know, we've also seen that um, he's uh, talking is, is pulled back on practices from time to time and morning skates from time to time. And certainly when the team's not on for morning skate, Demko does go out there if it's part of his routine. But when you play a guy that much, sometimes at this stage of the year, you, it, it puts you in a position where you wind up coaching him less. And that also takes away the ability to just tweak and tighten certain parts of your game that might need it at any time of the year. But I mean, for me, I don't necessarily see fatigue, but I still see um, a workload that's needlessly high. I, I can't get around it. And if I'm the club, I probably discourage him from going to Latvia. You know, and I, and I know there's something to be said for playing in high stakes games, but it, like, I just want this guy 1000% ready for September, like 1000% ready. Yeah. if. I think it would would perhaps be a different conversation if he had come back from injury and um, and struggled, but he's been really good over over the course of um, you know since returning. So it isn't a case where you might look at Worlds and go, "All right, all right, use that to build confidence going into training camp and next season," because he's already rebuilt that confidence. I think based off sure. based off the way that um, he's um, he's been playing. I think the practice time point that you uh, brought up too, not just in relation to how much he's played, but just in general, general, when you look at the team's schedule over the last month or so, I, I think that's a good point too, because you're right. They haven't had a lot of full practices where he'd have a lot of goalie ice with, uh, with Ian Clark to sharpen some of these details potentially. Um, so, I mean, that could be a factor. The other interesting thing that, you know, just in this conversation about workload, I'm still, I still don't understand why Quinn Hughes is playing as many minutes as he has been. Played oh 29-38 against, the, uh, against uh, the Kings last night. 
crossed thir- the 30 minute mark against uh, Calgary. And, and granted that that game went to OT as did the St. Louis one where he played over 28, but he's consistently pushing 27, 28, 29, 30. Uh, and, and this extends even past um, like some of these, like, again, as I mentioned, a couple of these recent ones went to, uh, went to OT 27 and a half against Dallas in, in, um, in that victory, nearly 30. Um, in a regulation loss uh, against Vegas on March 21st, his um, his minutes are, are really creeping back up again. And and I mean, I I think at this point, I, I'd prefer him to be closer to the 25 minute mark. Um, but yeah, I, it's it's been odd to see that as well. Um, again, I get it because you have injuries, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. And like I said, they're on to their 15th defenseman, and and then you lose Tyler Mars for a period of that game last night. You've got Hiroshi in, and you don't want to overload him, you know, at this point, just because I know they had talked about maybe getting him um, five or six practices before getting him into a game, and instead he's got to play 14 minutes last night, given the circumstances around him. So, you know, I like I get it from that standpoint in terms of who's available, but given the lack of stakes, I still don't see the need to put this player at risk. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to continue the goaltending situation as it gets into next year and lots more to dive into as the VanCast continues. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. A reminder that my appearance here on the VanCast is brought to you by my good friends at Key West Ford in New Westminster. Loving the Mach E Electric. Harm, let's talk a bit about uh, Vancouver's goaltending for next year. Okay, obviously we know where they're at with Thatcher Demko, but... Our good friends at Canucks Army did an article talking about what the options are for next year. So as we lay out the options, Colin Delia is a free agent at the end of the year. Do they go out and re-sign him? Is that enough? Certainly he's played well under Rick Tockett. And, you know, I, I think people like what he has to offer, right? He certainly looks better now than he did earlier in the year when Thatcher Demko first got hurt. You've got Spencer Martin on a one-way contract for next year as well. And you've got Archer Silovs in the minors. And then you've also got a plethora of veteran goaltending options that are going to be available. More players available than there are going to be, uh, you know, dance spots. So you could wind up in a situation where the Canucks could go out and get a veteran goaltender on the cheap. In-house options or look outside? Because, you know, from my perspective, you know, we look at Spencer Martin a year ago and he played very well on a limited sample size. To the point where many people coming into this season did feel that, look, play this guy more. Like, don't overload Demko. Play this guy more. At the start of the season, neither goaltender was great. But Martin was no, you know, worse than Demko. Martin was was fine until Demko got hurt. Once Demko got hurt and it became Martin and Delia, both were not good. And, and Martin was categorically awful to the point where in February they've got to wave him. But again, he's still under contract. You know, could they get him back to a situation where he was, you know, the 2021-22 version of Martin versus what he showed us this past year when the ball was completely given to him? Because I don't think any of us really thought he could be that guy for three months, right? And at that point, he got exposed. But when you can play him once a week or once every 10 days, he seemed to be the best version of himself. When you look at a guy like Delia, he's certainly been good in the last five games, you know, but I think we all feel that they've got to find a way to manage Demko's minutes next year. So he doesn't wear down. I don't know if that's realistic given how the, given how the head coach is deploying him now. I, you know, like, I don't know that I see a version of uh, Demko playing less than 60 games if he's playing as elite as he's playing. And then we're going to wind up sitting here in March 
having the same discussion. And I think in the case of Archer Silovs, we love what we've seen so far in a small sample size, but he's young. And for his development, playing more games matters. From my perspective, I would still stay local. I would still stay internal. And I would go out and re-sign Colin Delia. And I think if you could get into a scenario where you take Delia and Silovs and play each of them 10 to 12 games, you can still have Silov spend the majority of his time in Abbotsford where he can play 30 to 40 games there along with his 10 to 12 games here. And he can still get his development. But now you don't overload a guy like Delia into a role that he might not be completely ready for. But I don't know. Like I, I think there might be some internal options. That, and I'm curious to see what some of these other goaltenders come in at. Because then you've still got to learn Ian Clark. And you know how Ian Clark is in that – he wants you to play the game a certain way. He's not, he's an exceptional coach. I'm not sure how adaptable a coach he is, right? Like he has his way of playing the game and you have to conform to how he plays the game. Generally, once you do, you're better for it. But there is an adjustment period for goaltenders who have to go through that. So to bring somebody in from the outside who hasn't had a background in Clarkism, that might not go well at the start of the year, right? It might take some time. So, I think the internal options, better the devil you know, for lack of a better description, you could be able to cobble a backup scenario. Now, if you wind up losing Thatcher Demko for an extended period of time again, you're effed anyway, right? It's not like yeah. any one of these veteran backup options is going to be able to give you 50 games. So for me, why not take advantage of the guys that you've got, put them each in a manageable situation, so you're not asking Delia to play 22 games. But you could get 10, to 10, 11, 12 out of a couple of guys and get you to that point where you're comfortable and can still take a little bit of pressure off Demko. Is that too convoluted? Are they better off just having some clarity with one other guy from the outside? Or, or how do you see it working? I, I honestly like the the way that you've walked through those scenarios because for for starters, I mean – the club's going to have limited cap space in the off season. They have more pressing needs in terms of the top four, in terms of probably adding another centerman. And they don't, they're they're They already have basically no wiggle room to, to play with. They in fact need to move contracts out to be able to address some of those first priorities. So going to free agency, especially in a market where, I mean, Last last summer, for example, it was really really competitive to find quality uh, quality goaltending. There were more teams looking for goaltending help than there were available quality goaltenders, and that seemed to sort of drive the prices up a little bit, even for some of the um, some of the the backup type uh, type options. So, first of all, even with the cap space, I no matter what you do, even if it's getting a guy in for agency. It has to be somebody who's right around the, the league minimum because you have more pressing needs at other um, at other at, at other parts of the roster. What you brought yeah, up one point well, five million for a goaltender is too much right now. Yeah, and that's for example what Kevin Lankinen went for uh, to sign with uh, with the Predators this past uh, this past offseason. The other point that you brought up that was that's really that's really really like smart now that I think about it is the idea that sometimes there is a bit of a learning curve to the Ian Clark uh, style. I think about, for example, Thatcher De or um, Jacob Markstrom when he first under Clark started to, uh, to, to try and find his game, especially as, uh, as the starter, there was like a two, three month period where he was really, really struggling. And a lot of us were sort of wondering if he could be the guy, be the number one. And then obviously afterwards, his game sort of took off and he was uh, he was brilliant, but there was a learning curve. When uh, the club went out in free agency and signed Braden Holpe with with the thought that he could be a tandem goaltender with, uh, with Thatcher Demko, Holpe, despite his pedigree, despite his championship experience, he wasn't he wasn't able to really ever find his uh, find his rhythm. Uh, Yarrow Halak comes in, he had been for years one of the most consistent backups in the year. Halak wasn't really able to to find his form here. He he wasn't um, able to provide quality uh, backup level goaltending. We still you're still worried about ha having to play him in certain games. Whereas with a with a backup, you at least want to have the confidence that hey, once every four games, for example, once every five games, you don't want to have to worry about putting a guy in. And so, especially if you 
are able to sort of, whether it's with Delia or another sort of like cheap quad A sort of goaltender, sign that type of guy as opposed to a legit backup option. Then you've got three guys and, you know, whether it's a Delia type, whether it's a Martin, whether it's a Seelovs, all of those guys, you hope that you can cobble together a reasonable platoon. And, um, and, and, and I think that is considering the club's salary cap restraints, probably the, the way to, to look at it, especially because Abbotsford is so close. Like that's a real advantage that the Canucks have now. If the Canucks' affiliate was still in Utica, then it would be a lot more complicated because for a guy like Seelovs, where for example, if he's playing in um in playing in the American League, and you want to spot him a start or a couple a couple uh, starts over um a month while the team's at home, it'd be a lot more complicated to fly guy in and in and out from all the way across the country. But Abbotsford's right here, so it makes it a lot easier. Where any guy from Abbotsford you want, you can um, you can figure out a way to 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 essentially get him uh, get him into these uh, home home starts when you need to give uh, Demko and Demko and that off. And you do need to finesse it a little bit, right? Because you don't want to get into the situation you did this year where you ran out of call ups, right? And so now if you want to get Nils Hoglander up here, you can't, right? So you know you've got to be smart about it. Where you bring in if you want to bring in Silovs, you bring him in for a full homestand. Right, where you know you might have two back to backs, or you bring them in for a full road trip where you know that you might have a couple of back to backs and, and you kind of do it in that situation. So you're not just calling them up and down on a, you know, on a daily basis. Right. Um, so yeah, like I, th- I think if they do that, there's got to be a, a plan built in right at the start of the year to, to finesse it and get both goaltenders their work at various times in the year. Um, so that, uh, you know, and, and number one, the first thing to keep in mind is this is when you think Demko will need his breaks. Right. And then you, you kind of bring in the goaltenders accordingly because it's not always just going to be in a back to back situation. Right. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I think internally is probably the way to, the way to go for them. Uh, a couple of other things that, um, we want to change gears and talk a little bit about. Let's, let's start with the, the two young guys. So let's start with Hiroshi because he made his NHL debut last night. And we can get into McDonough who scored the other night, uh, in his home debut. But let's start with Hiroshi. I got to be honest, 14 minutes of, of ice time. I was pretty impressed with him. And, and I say, I say that because. Of how much I didn't notice him, and there were times when when he had the puck and was able to make a quick play and just transition things fast, and he looked calm. You know, there were a couple of other times, you know, on some plays along the wall where he got knocked down a few times, and you know, you you could see the the physical side of things that there was going to need to be an improvement in strength, which we knew, right? I mean, look, young guy just coming in here for the first time, we know he's got to get stronger. Every young guy's got to get stronger, uh, but I, I got to be honest, and it was just one game, but I. He did enough in that game where I hope we get to see him more. And we might not have a choice given the injuries on the back end yet, but I'd love to see him get at least four more appearances over the balance of the season here. Absolutely. I really enjoyed watching him play, especially for a player who is making his NHL debut probably nervous. It's a huge step up from the NCAA straight into the NHL. I was impressed by the level of confidence, poise, and composure that he had with the puck. I think one criticism with defensemen further down the lineup that you often have, especially with uh, some of the defensemen this club has iced over the last half decade, is players will get the puck under pressure, they will panic, and they'll Im- immediately go glassing out, flip it out, perhaps even turn it over. They just don't look comfortable handling it and making a calm play, whereas Hirose looked so impressive in terms of that composure with the puck on his stick and uh, helping sort of engineer exits. I mean, there were a couple of nice outlet passes. There were a couple of plays where he had a four checker sort of trying to try to apply pressure and Hirose just hung onto the puck for that extra moment so that that four checker would, would fly by and it would give him a new sort of lane to be able to skate out or or make a short little bump pass. I liked his agility was uh, was what stood out in terms of his skill set uh, in tight spaces. That's that's uh, one of the um, important things that I've sort of noticed in terms of what matters for defensemen in, in, in helping excel on breakouts. Is it's not necessarily what's what's your top speed. Uh, how how fast are you when when you have when you when you have five six strides under your belt? It's about from a standstill. Oftentimes. How quickly or, or or how agile can you be with that first couple steps, uh, the spins, the turns, 
And with Hirose, you definitely saw that in his skating ability. You see it in his, I think, intelligence and how he reads the forecheck that comes uh, comes um, comes down on him. Especially against a Kings team. Keep in mind that is one of the one of the fastest, most aggressive, most effective forechecking teams in the NHL. So uh, up and down lineup as well. It's not a case of their top six is uh, is loaded with great forecheckers and then they have a soft bottom six their entire lineup is really effective at being able to chase forecheckers and make life difficult for, for defensemen to break puck out and yeah he looked uh, solid in that in that and um i'm i'm with right with you in terms of i, I want to see how this goes down down the stretch and talking to him after the game and, and even talking to rick talkett and other players about him I don't think he was nervous. I mean, like, I'm sure he was nervous with a small N, right? Like, it's impossible to go in and be completely, completely calm. But compared to other guys that have been in that situation, like, he was, if he was nervous with a small N, he was excited with a small E. You know what I mean? Like, he just didn't want to make the moment bigger than it was. It wasn't like, oh, my God, lifelong dream. I'm finally here playing in the NHL. You know, yeah, there were moments where he talked about, you know, Drew Doughty being on the other side and um, things like that. But you just get the sense he was just, understanding of the fact he was in a no-lose position last night, right? Because he got dropped in earlier. If he made some mistakes, that wasn't going to bury him in the organization. It just wasn't because everybody kind of understood the context with which he made that appearance. And if he can take that level of calm and continue that over the course of, of the rest of the season, if you know if he gets in three or four more games, like it's going to bode so well for him next year. Just in terms of having known what to expect, I don't think he's going to play here next year, or at least start here next year, but he can be a key, key guy for them in Abbotsford next year and certainly get his share of games and be a meaningful part of the organization and their pipeline, which I know you're going to get into later on in this show. But, you know, just to be able to have that found money and so often it's your approach and your attitude and your willingness to just kind of be present, and not get ahead of yourself that allows you to succeed early on, right? Because so many of these guys just put so much pressure on themselves early, it doesn't go well. And then very quickly, they become an afterthought in any organization. Absolutely. And especially when you're speaking about a player who's trying to probably over the next um, you know year or so compete for a depth spot. And, and, and even if it isn't an everyday role, it, it would be in a bottom pair sort of situation. For those types of players, the oftentimes the less noticeable they are, the better, right? Because it just means they're efficiently doing their job. They're not making egregious mistakes. That's oftentimes a big part of the game is just making sure you play a calm, level-headed, level-headed, mistake-free brand of uh, of hockey. And yeah, I mean, it was the like you could the lack of nervousness was apparent in a lot of times when you're nervous, things speed up, right? If you're nervous and you're, let's say, giving a presentation, you're probably speaking a little bit too fast. Well, in hockey, a lot of times it's the same sort of thing where when you're playing the games, if you're nervous, you speed up your decisions prematurely. You feel the pressure a little bit more than you should when somebody's chasing you with the puck. Um and that's where Hirose again looked composed, and we'll see how he uh, we'll see how he does down the stretch. Especially now, a window of opportunity is open up with with Willanen gone and Breezeball, especially sort of again in in the St. Louis and Calgary games. It looked like he regressed a little bit, so he might have a window of opportunity here. Where if Breezeball, for example, had really been maintaining the level of play that he showed initially upon being recalled, might have seen a scenario where. Breezeball is 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 has played himself to a level where it's like Rick Talk. It feels like he has to keep rolling with with Breezeball, but no. I mean, Hirose's got an opportunity now where you know it'll be interesting to see how the how the how the balance shifts. But there's there's an opportunity here to potentially play some games and um, and make a solid first impression. Aiden McDonough uh, played ten minutes his first game, second game scores his first goal here against Calgary the other night, and then plays three more shifts after that. And you've, you've got him last night playing seven and a half minutes. Now that dries to Nika line. I miss tough line to be on right now, right? They're, you're not going to try to roll them out a lot, but um, shouldn't they be playing him a little bit more right now? As we talk about how much other guys are getting played, like seven and a half minutes in his third game. Uh, what are we doing? Yeah, probably could do with a little bit more. I'd honestly like to see him get a shot at some point with, uh, with Connor Garland. As yeah. 
when you look at McDonough's game, clearly the the best asset that he has is how adept he is at finding soft ice near the blue paint. He just seems to find a way to get open. He's such a smart offensive player in, a, in being able to sort of see where his teammates have the puck and then sort of positioning himself where, I mean, right from his NHL debut, we saw him generate a lot, generating a lot of chances, whether it was off rebounds, just the net. Obviously, that's how he scored his um, his first career goal against uh, the Flames. Just finding that spot on uh, on the on the back door, being able to um, sort of go undetected, especially when he has that big body. He's not going to be a player that's easy to check, but for that to sort of be that effect to be maximized on a line, you need you need a playmaker that can get him the puck. You look at the play that Sheldon has had to make in terms of that gorgeous pass to McDonough. That's not a pass that I'm expecting Dreiser Stadnika to make on a consistent enough basis. Whereas with Garland, he is one of the club's um, best five playmakers in, in terms of, you know, the spins and turn. Often he finds guys from, um, you know, when he's behind the net and he, he'll make a quick pop pass into the slot when, when, uh, when you might least expect it. I think it'd be really interesting to see McDonough affairs when he has somebody that can actually feed him the puck when he's playing with Dreisden Stadnika, neither one of Dreisden nor Stadnika is 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 a playmaker that I'm able to depend on. And if you're not able to get him the get McDonald on a consistent consistent enough base, then I don't really think we're going to see uh, we're going to see the um what his offensive game can sort of um look like at the NHL level, especially because look, Garland's in a bottom six role now. Not as if you're you're talking about throwing down into the into the top six and. You're worried about matchups. You're worried about him all of a sudden having to play 17, 18 minutes. Like, oh, it would still be a sort of bottom six role. You could still ice him around 11, 12 minutes a night, but you give him a few minutes to build a bit more confidence and you you can hope maybe give a playmaker to, to sort of get him the puck is, is what I'd like to see maybe. Yeah, like I said, for me, I just want to see him in a in a better position to show what he's about, right? And look, he, he's another player that I think is in a, no lose situation with the organization during the final few games here. Uh, he's going to be, a, you know, a, an, an important piece here down the road. You know, probably he spends most of next season in Abbotsford again next year. But again, while you've got him, while you're in a position where you're limited in how you can use him this year, as far as Abbotsford's concerned, like let's see what he can do. You know, he doesn't have to play with Elias, Elias Pedersen, but like you said, with a Connor Garland, um, you know, maybe get some shifts with JT Miller. Uh, Let's let's see what he can do. Let's let's give him an opportunity, especially with what little is at stake here. When we come back, uh, I want to get into Brock Besser, who scored for the Canucks again last night, Vitaly Kravtsov, uh, and what is coming down the road as far as the prospect pipeline is uh, with these Canucks when the VanCast returns. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Harm, let's talk Brock Besser, who scored the lone goal for the Canucks last night. Look, he, he's been better down the stretch, certainly in his last, seven points in his last five, including three goals. Three off of 20 might be a stretch to get there, but not out of the realm. Um, we talk about what needs to happen for this organization as far as cap space is concerned. He's been in a real unique position for the majority of the year where I think everybody's understood that he would like a trade. Now, he hasn't demanded a trade. Uh, he's been open to a trade. He's kind of been hopeful of a trade. He's um, worked with the organization to see that his agent has had a chance to go out and explore and do all of that. But you also have a player that really does like his teammates. Like He, he genuinely likes 
Elias Pettersson and JT Miller. And, you know, he may not like the external forces in the Vancouver market, but um, he does like his teammates, which has allowed this to be a comfortable situation. It hasn't been a negative situation other than the fact the question was weighing over his head all year. The club needs to move money. Um, he's still got two years left on an onerous contract here, but it's only two years. Has he done enough to rehabilitate a portion of his value to the point where, yeah, the Canucks might need to throw in a sweetener. Maybe they might need to retain a little bit, but it might not have to be as big a sweetener or it might not require retaining as much. You know, he's not a one point or he's not a six point six seven million dollar player. Uh, even if he hits the 20 goal mark and, you know, gets into the high 50s for points. But is he at the point where maybe the Canucks only need to retain a million on him or or less and uh, put themselves in a position to get this deal done? Because, again, it, it is only two years. This isn't like Oliver ekman Larson, where it's been a liability for a much longer period of time at a much bigger number. I, is there enough there? Hopefully. He's definitely looked a lot more confident and effective offensively over the last, I mean, basically since since the new year even, we're seeing, I think, earlier in the season, he would maybe like pick, we, we'd, he'd have stretches where he'd pick up points, but he would still mostly look invisible. And a lot of those points are sometimes secondary assists or situations where he might end up with, um, you know, being credited with an assist, but it didn't, he didn't actually drive or, or or wasn't primarily responsible for that goal necessarily happening whereas i think he's his points have lo- have been a lot more individually driven lately he's definitely caught the eye a lot more offensively he's definitely threatened a lot more from the slot in terms of his shot as well getting a lot more looks there the what what it, i think comes down to is obviously how much stock does a team put into some of these games down the stretch where a team like the canucks isn't really in um in a playoff position because right or wrong that's how some organizations view it is they just don't view um or, or give the same level of value to a lot of these games and where, where they consider uh, garbage time right so we'll see what type of impact that has it's great to see his offensive games start to shine again and again be more noticeable however it is interesting that his defensive game has still been subpar I, I looked at uh, the numbers last Thursday, for example. So since Rick Tockett has taken over at that point on Thursday when I looked at it, so it hasn't t- it taken into account um, the last couple of games here. But at that point, with Besser on the ice, the Canucks had been under Tockett controlling just 44% of the expected goal share, which was the lowest mark among uh, all Canucks forwards. And um, Besser's goals against rate at 5-on-5 was 3.4 per 60 minutes again, the highest rate of all Canucks forwards. And we've still seen some of those blemishes like against the Blues game where he had that giveaway along uh, along the board. So it's it's been interesting where, like, and, and I know this is sort of separate from this sort of his future and trade value sort of a discussion, but I still don't think we've seen the best version of, uh, of Brock Besser. The best version of Brock Besser is this level of offense, but with a well-rounded two-way game, whereas... We still haven't seen that complete side of him where such a big part of the story around his development between, let's say, 2019 to 2021 was this, especially towards the end of the Travis Green era, was this idea that, okay, he he was starting to round out his game and he wasn't a defensive liability anymore. He wasn't a one-dimensional player. He was able to contribute in uh, in a lot of areas beyond just his goal-scoring ability. So the way I'm looking at it right now is the offense is back on track, which is amazing. You need that. And I think that's more important for him rehabilitating his value than, than the dis- defensive side. But man, it would have been great if he was delivering this level of offense while showing the level of, you know, nobody's expecting Besser to be a two-way stud, right? Nobody's expecting him to be Mark Stone defensively. But even for him to be average defensively, I think you've... if if you had a scenario where you have that and this level of um, of production, I think that would have been, you'd be pointing at that and going, that's the best version of Besser. Like that's the type of player he can be. Uh, and so we're still, I think, waiting to see that level of completeness in his game, despite, again, the fact that he's been excellent offensively. Because like I look at this team and, and what I see up front, like, you know, we, we'll get into their needs in a little bit here, but 
when I look at their forward group, right, and we saw it coming into this year, wow, this, this group's going to be so dynamic as far as their top nine is concerned. And that was with Besser, or sorry, not Besser, but Horvat, uh, along with Miller playing down the middle. So now we understand they need a three C, right? I mean, Miller's going to be the two C if they don't wind up making a trade for him between now and the summer. You know, if we if we look at this from the standpoint of, let's assume one of Besser or Garland gets moved, right? Let's assume they can at least get one of them done. Reasonable? I think after, so. Okay. So after that, when you look at their, their potential top nine wingers, it's the other one of Besser or Garland. Uh, you've got Kuzmenko after that. You've got like Mikheyev after that. Um, then what, right? I mean, you've got... Ovillier, I guess he's not going to slot into a bottom nine. So let's say he's a, he's a middle six winger for you if you don't wind up moving him this offseason. But, you know, that's certainly not a guy you want to resign to an extension this offseason. So you've got four players there. Then you've got any two of Pearson, Podkolzin, and Hoaglander. Right? And, and we haven't seen Hoaglander here, but I know he's still a part of the organization's future unless he winds up being put in as a sweetener somewhere else. You've got Tanner Pearson. We don't even know if he's going to play next year. And Pod Colson certainly hasn't looked like he's earned the coach's trust yet. You know, in a perfect world, as I see it, like I think Di Giuseppe, Joshua, and Nils Oman could be a really good fourth line. Like a yeah. really good fourth line. But any of those guys might have to play up and down and elsewhere in the lineup simply because of where they're at right now, right? I mean, how much more can you go out and get? You know you need a 3C. So are you going to go out and try to acquire one more top six winger? Because really, they need one. Truthfully, they need one whether they trade Besser or Garland or not. I, I wouldn't worry about it too much, to be honest. I, I think they have enough guys there to where you can hope that... I, I mean, if, if Niels Hoaglander, for example is able to come up and he's he's been crushing it in Abbotsford. I, I think under with the new head coach again, a, a head coach in Rick Tockett who shares a lot of the same values that uh, that Travis Green did. And we saw the level of success Hoaglander had under Green. If you even see like that level, like just one guy hitting like that, I think that all of a sudden does make um, a significant difference uh, this 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 team, I think, still has so many winger options that I'm just not worried about it. Especially because if you're able to find a centerman, then another middle six center would help drive a third line. Then you're less reliant on your wingers. Plus, you already have Pedersen, who he sure you can play Kuzmenko with him. And then the guy on the other other wing doesn't really matter. Like Pedersen and Kuzmenko together are just so dynamic, so dominant that you're, it's not going to be too hard to find a complimentary guy that can excel in that role, I think. So I'm not too worried about the winger situation, to be honest. Uh, and one guy that it just looks like is going nowhere with this organization is Vitaly Kravtsov. Like he's had an opportunity here. And we've seen the odd flash of creativity from this player, but there has been nothing to suggest he can be a consistent NHL player. And I saw him the other day when he got scratched before the Calgary game and Kravtsov was going to go in. And when he had the extra skate, when he had the extra time and he, he was the last one off the ice and came in, you could tell just looking at his body language, kind of staring off into space, and he, would just, he didn't change out of his gear for a while. He was a player that looked frustrated. He was a player that looks like the writing is on the wall. And for all Rick Tockett's going to talk about, about what, how important this summer is, I think this summer is going to be spent back in the, you know, getting ready for the KHL. Like, I, I just, I don't see a future for Kravtsov in this organization. It was a low cost bet. They got what they paid for and it was a good swing, but I don't see any there there. Yeah, there hasn't been enough. I mean, you're also just kind of left wondering what exactly he is in terms of role and, um, and what exactly he brings to the table because you expect him, especially as a as a former top ten pick in twenty eighteen, to sort of okay, maybe be an offensive guy. And we've seen that he's had, you know, it feels like one great scoring chance per game, but it's just been that flash. He hasn't been able to string any level of consistency in how he's driving play offensively, and he's only got the one assist in three in thirteen games, no goals. You don't see the bottom line there, and then outside the outside of the lack of offense, you 
you're looking at a player that doesn't add defensive value, doesn't kill penalties. It, it's just you're you don't see. I think any you haven't seen consistency even in terms of using his size, right? Like that's that's an area where, for instance, we've seen flashes of him like winning a puck battle in the offensive zone. And you're like, if you can do this on a consistent enough basis, that's going to add a lot of value. But then you only see it once or twice a game. I think that's kind of been the story of Kraft's office. Everything is once or twice a game in terms of the positives. And you still have some of the warts in terms of situations where he hangs onto the puck too long and might give it away. Or just generally, it doesn't seem like he processes the game at a fast enough level to... Um, to really make high-end plays um, in an NHL environment. So, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really been impressed. But again, li- like you mentioned, it was, you know, it basically cost them nothing to acquire him. And um, and it was a worthwhile bet considering his pedigree and considering how sour things had got, gotten in uh, uh, in New York with the lack of opportunity there. Yeah, but it, like I said, it certainly seems like a player that is destined to go back to Europe because he just – just doesn't appear to have an NHL game, uh, you know, the complete two-way game that or two hundred foot game that certainly tra- uh, Travis Screen certainly Rick Tockett is looking for. So I don't know. I I don't see a path out of this for him this year. I mean, look, I don't want to write him off as a player at this point, but I think he's had a reasonable sample size here. Uh, Tockett hasn't seen much, and I just don't know where he gets the opportunity early next season for a team whose October is going to be everything next year. Like if you're Rick Tockett, you just can't take the chance. And, and you know, training camps nowadays are nothing, right? It's three practices and you get into the preseason. So I, I just don't see a scenario that exists for him to earn the trust of Rick Tockett to be a significant part of this opening day lineup, if any part of this opening day lineup, because, you know, you talk about where he fits, he's not going to be a fourth line player here. Right, he's not going to be a fourth line player anywhere. That's just not how his game is calibrated, and I don't know that he's going to get the the trust of his coach to play any meaningful minutes. So, I just I think he's kind of boxed himself in right now, and and like I said, he, I I fully expect he's going to wind up being back in Russia. But um, let's uh, talk a bit about uh, some of the other options for next year that are going to be coming up through this organization. Now, you did a, a pretty good article. Uh, about the Canucks prospect pool. And I want to uh, switch gears and talk defense right now because uh, the other name, as far as the forwards are concerned, I think Atu Ratu is a player that's going to get a long, long look next year. Didn't get much of one this year, but uh, will be part of what happens in Abbotsford and then and then can get a meaningful look next year. But Philip Johansson, you know, as we look at some of the defensive options for this team, you know, I've been trying to wonder why they haven't gone down the road of trying to get Kyle Burroughs done. There's been very little conversation on that file. Um, I think he's played very well for this team, and I, I think he could be a really good six or seven. There have been some suggestions that maybe it means that Luke Shen is coming back. I'm not sure if that's the case, but you know, where do they go there? I, I, you know, I've said before that I do not believe, from the sources that I've spoken to, I do not believe Oliver ekman Larson is going to get bought out. I think as of today, uh, April uh, 3rd, that's not one of the options. Could it change? I suppose it could, but as of today, the plan is not to buy out OEL. So I think they want to move him down into a third pair spot um, and potentially bring in another guy on the left-hand side. So, uh, you know, for Burroughs, it's not looking good. But Philip Johansson is a guy this organization is really, really high on right now. A guy that's got a real opportunity to play meaningful NHL games in Vancouver as far as Ryan J- Johnson's concerned. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what RJ was saying, that they expect him to be NHL ready next season, whether it's making the team right out of camp, or even if he goes down to Abbotsford, the sort of situation where it's like, all right, you start in Abbotsford, play big minutes, and then you get called up at some point, maybe if an, if an injury happens and you pr- and you provide games at, at least some point. It's going to be interesting. I mean, he was, um, of course, drafted 24th overall in 2018 by the Minnesota Wild. The pick was considered a big reach at the time. I, I remember it sort of being shocking for um for a lot of uh the hockey world because i think he was more projected to go much later in the second round for example and then of course last summer the wild decided not to uh not to sign the the important distinction there that's important to make is that it wasn't a case where the wild looked at johansson and went we don't even think this guy's worth a contract slot we don't like that's the level of of uh, pessimism we have around his NHL 
potential. It was a case of the fact that the Wild didn't sign him. They received a compensatory second round pick in 2022 because he was first round pick, didn't get signed. So they essentially chose the second round pick over your hands. So that's important just in terms of the baseline of where he was at last summer. Of course, the Canucks swooped in, signed him to that uh, two-year ELC. And this year, he's been playing um, in a crucial sort of top four role for for Lunda. Six foot one, moves a puck well, has a cannon of a shot. I think he's got some uh, room to grow in terms of um, his defensive game. You watch him and he, and he definitely has the competitiveness. But there are sort of details, I think, to be ironed out there. But yeah, they're, they're really high on his... Um, on his ability to make an impact next season, which is interesting because all of a sudden now you can understand why, for instance, the club struck out on the RD or RD options like Jake Livingston or Sam Alinsky in terms of the high profile NCAA college free agents, because all of these free agents are looking at opportunity. That's the number one thing that they look for. For these guys, yes, there's opportunity at the top end of the roster, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, another sort of high end top four guy besides Philip Peronic, but when you look at the bottom part of the right side D, just to get in to to playing depth minutes, it's pretty competitive. When you look at Tyler Myers is already under contract for next season, and, and the club, you know, we'll see if they're able to move him or not. Based off the letter to season ticket holders uh, that uh, that the Canucks sent out, they name checked Ethan Bear, so. You know that uh, that would at least lead you to consider that he might be in the plans for next season. Now, now you know that they certainly felt that uh, um, Johansson could um, could be you know a player that uh, provides NHL value for next season. And all of a sudden, you go, all right, it's more crowded than uh, than maybe what we initially anticipated. So uh, you can understand why you're. If I'm Livingston or Malincia, I go, it's kind of crowded. There might be better opportunity elsewhere. So that's you know, an interesting sort of sidebar uh, of uh, of this as well. Well, Bear's also a possibility on just a one-year deal. And I like I, I get it. Uh, you know, you also want to be part of a winning organization, but I don't know that it's that crowded with true proven quality. You know, there there are options, like legitimate options, but they're just that. They're options. They're nobody you're going to look at next year and think, oh, wow, this D is set. Oh yeah, right. Like I, you just you can't look at it that way. But nonetheless, Johansson certainly seems like that player that is one of the best players outside the National Hockey League. You know what I mean? That's just kind of ready for this opportunity. And uh, and he he's certainly a name that absolutely intrigues me. And you know, a guy that has some ability to to move the puck. And you know, we'll see where that leaves a guy like Jack Rathbone, who I think has looked better in the last few games that he's been here. Um, the challenge with Jack is just that not not having any penalty killing utility, right? And that's going to be a factor for. Bottom six forwards, uh, you know, as I talked about the winger conversation earlier, like how many of these players are we talking about that are, can actually be legitimate penalty killers, right? Like we know Mikheyev is that guy. Um, you know, certainly they've got Di Giuseppe and Joshua, who are that guy now, and Nils Oman, uh, more so than maybe Di Giuseppe, but a player like him could do that job. But that has to be a part of it. So you're not having to rely, as good as Pedersen and Miller have been on the PK, you don't want to make them for 82 games your first your first forward pair out of the gate, right? Like they've got to give themselves some options and that's also going to factor into what happens uh, on the back end. And I certainly think that a player like like um, Kyle Burrows can give them a bit of that. You mentioned the letter. We don't have a ton of time left to get into the letter, but yeah, the names in it were interesting, but that was about four days ago. We, you know, it, every organization is that doesn't make the playoffs is famous for their letter. Uh, just like this organization is going to be famous for their summer. So Lots to talk about for us. Uh, we will get into, you know, first of all, I do want to apologize to our listeners because last week we were planning a live room, but Drancer had like a tooth extracted. Wouldn't you love to be around Drancer when he can't talk? <laughs> well, because that's kind of what happened, right? Like he couldn't talk. So we had to, we had to cast the live room last week. We are going to do one right now. We're targeting Saturday, but we will confirm that on Twitter, whether or not we can do that after the Calgary game. But uh, we are looking ahead to our next live room. We'll try to get two in this month. And then as for Harm and I and our next show, the Canucks do have back to back home games on Monday or sorry, back to back away games on the West Coast on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, so we've got to kind of figure out what the next best day is. For us to do the show, we could potentially do it Tuesday after the game, or we could do it Wednesday during the day. Uh, one way or the other, Wednesday will be your main day for consumption for the next episode of the Vancast. And after that, 
Wow Harm one game left in the regular season. Crazy. I know this year's actually gone by surprising. Like there's been so no, much. No, it hasn't. Don't even say that. It hasn't really? gone by fast. I mean, no, it's been a lot less painful than I thought it would be. Or it, like there's been so much, so many storylines, so much drama, so many interesting things happening around the organization, whether it be positive or negative, that it hasn't been as boring as I thought. That's probably the better way to put it. it has it hasn't been as boring as I thought, considering how uh, how awful they were out of the gate and how they were basically out of the playoff race uh, before Christmas. Yeah, I mean, it was far from uneventful. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so this team, if nothing else, gives us uh, lots to talk about. And they always win the offseason, right? And by winning, we don't necessarily mean that they've improved the most. We just mean that they, they give us a lot to talk about. This team wins the offseason. They're very good in the summer. Very active. And uh, yeah, but we, we certainly are going to continue with the Van Cash throughout April and really throughout the Stanley Cup playoffs. We'll probably take a bit of a break in August, but there'll be plenty of conversation going forward so don't you worry if you're looking for other pod pod options bruce cassidy the head coach of the vegas golden knights joins jesse granger mike russo and rob pizzo on this week's roundtable also danny de kaiser is sean gentilly and max boltman's guest on the athletic hockey show usa as for um uh, as for our VIPs, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic if you'd like to become a VIP for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Again, be on the lookout for another live room at the end of this weekend, followed by our next show uh, in the middle of next week. For Harm, I'm Farhan. Thanks for logging on. <laughs>